electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. Today's discussion is with Andrew Brenner, head of international fixed income at National Alliance. He's been in the markets for decades, and he's the kind of guy who can take complicated and confusing moves in bonds and rates and make them immediately understandable and exciting. I joke that he writes better headlines than I do. These are high stakes times for interest rates, given what's going on with inflation. There is a huge divide about whether rates are going higher or not and how persistent inflation will be. So I'd like to take a really deep dive into that topic now. And with that, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Kelly, thanks very much for having me. And I want to wish you and your family a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too. And it's always dangerous to you know, talk about rates when today, the day we're talking about them. And then by the time this goes up, it's like a whole different world. I almost want to joke, do you think rates are going to be higher or lower by the time our audience actually listens to this? Because we're, we're getting up towards 1.7% again on the 10-year. So Kelly, I'll answer, it. I'll answer it this way. I think as we go into next week, Monday and Tuesday, given how equities have still outperformed bonds for the month, there'll be a reallocation. So I don't expect rates to get out of hand, at least in the 10-year and long bond, but they are probably going to go higher. But there is the possibility between now and Wednesday morning, they could go a little bit lower. So I think we're going to be in a range, but we're going to continue to grind to higher rates. Let me ask it this way. You know, it's the it's New Year's Eve and we're all singing Odd Lang Syne. Is the 10 year higher or lower than the yield I'm looking at as we record this 1.67 percent? Kelly, it's always tough to, to pinpoint a date because the end of the year isn't particularly important for bonds. But I've got to believe that given the current inflation trends and everything that we're seeing from the central bank and the chance that at the December meeting, they're, they're potentially, they're certainly going to talk about it, speeding up the tapering. I tend to think rates are going to be at higher yields. You're probably going to look at 176, maybe 185, wow. uh, maybe even 2%. Wow. All right. So with that in mind, you know, you know more than I that this is a fairly consensus view. I mean, the idea, maybe not in the rates world where you find people who are a little bit more, you know, bearish. I mean, bearish and bullish when we're talking about rates is always confusing, but more people who think they're going lower. But in the broader world, mom and pop and Joe and everybody on the street, if you ask them, would say interest rates are too low and they have to be going higher. Why have they been so far wrong about that? Kelly, it's been uh, manipulated by the world's central banks. And, uh, you know, the, the Fed has certainly been one of the culprits, the ECB another, the Bank of Japan a third, you know, and uh, not so much the Bank of England or Bank of Canada, but those three are, are clearly been keeping rates low globally. And, you know, I understand why, I understand what Powell did in March of 2020. And I think that was just genius, you know, bringing rates, not even waiting for this quarter of a point move per, per Fed meeting, just bringing it right down in two meetings and, and down to zero and keeping him there. But I think he's, he's stayed that position a little bit too long. 
you know, inflation, which had been 2%, give or take, you now have CPI at 6.2 on the recent print, you have PPI at 8.9, and you've got inflation everywhere from wage inflation to, uh, to rent inflation and to food inflation. And, and a lot of it is supply chain driven, but it doesn't really matter. It, it's out there and it needs to be addressed. And you can't have, you know, 167, 10 years when you have 6.2% CPI and other higher inflation numbers around. So I totally get that. And it's, you know, you look at different parts of the rate spectrum and they're reflecting the same concern, you know, um, 10 year break evens or 30 year. In other words, the market is saying that inflation is going to be higher. In some cases, the highest the market's been telling us in a long, long time, you know, upwards of 3% for the next couple of years, even for the time period beyond that. You watch these flows very carefully. You know, it's it's one thing for me to hear other people say the central banks are holding rates artificially low. And I go, okay, I can see why they would think that. Yes, they're buying bonds. But why do you think that? I mean, you know how big these markets are globally. The central bank is a piece of that. They can be an important signaling mechanism. They're buying a lot, but they can't literally hold the rates down, can they? You know, Kelly, over, over my you know, 30 plus years of, of trading, that answer would nine times out of 10 be, you're absolutely correct. But you know what? In the last couple of years, that not only have they continued to buy with, with, their, with their QE, and they've continued to, to buy out the curve and pretty consistently, it's been a global phenomenon where other central banks have done that. And, and the street, and, and, and the street as well as the, uh, as well as the bond vigilantes, as we used to, as we like to call them, they haven't been very effective at moving rates, you know, more than for a few days or a week or, or maybe two weeks at most. So yeah, I think the central banks can control it. And I think that's one of the biggest problems. You, you know, as you look at the 10 year right now, it's not a fair reflection of where rates should be. Historically, rates should be inflation plus GDP. Well, you know, you know, we're there. I mean, you're, now you're talking about when I was trading in the crash of, of 87, you know, you know, 10 year rates were 9%, but you know, well, they're not gonna go back to 9% anytime soon. But what you're saying, if we took inflation plus GDP last quarter, we're talking 8% nominal GDP, which is inflation and GDP. That is correct. And, and you know, and, and that obviously doesn't work anymore, but that worked for a period of time. Rates are absolutely too low. As far as, you know, what is the Fed thinking? The Fed's got their rationale. I mean, Powell's been very clear about this, but he's starting to lose traction on it. Powell has said that he wants to bring down the unemployment rate. And he wants to bring it down. He still thinks that there are a lot of there, there are five million people that that are that, where the market's underemployed. But he can't curtail who's retired. He can't curtail who wants to stay home because of COVID or childcare or whatever. I mean, right now you're having more people quitting jobs and going and negotiating. I mean, look at the John Deere settlement of earlier this week. You know, John Deere negotiated with with their union. He, they ended up giving a ten percent increase. An $8,500 bonus, 5% a year for the next two years, quarterly increases in wages, and their increased retirement package, if I read it correctly, in the Wall Street Journal, of uh, $270,000. You know, those prices, those increases in labor are going to be pushed through to the consumer. So inflation is out of control, and it's just going to get worse in the near term. 
One of the, you know, I joke this podcast should be called Too Wonky for TV. So I'm going to ask you about something really wonky. Um, not, not all market measures of inflation and interest rates show high levels into the future. So for example, Euro dollar futures, if you look out over a 10 year spectrum, only show rates at about 2%. In other words, they don't think the Fed's going to get to 2% until 2028. And then they think they would stop there. And frankly, that sounds to me like it could be about right. You know, we know we're going to have a effect this year where some of the goods inflation reverses. And yes, what you're talking about, rents and wages, you know, that all takes some time and offsets that. But I mean, they don't think the Fed's going to raise to 2% until 2028. And what if that market reading is correct? Well, Kelly, I, I would find it very difficult to believe that given historic rates of of somewhere in the vicinity of 4% 10 years, that it's going to be till 2028. You're basically talking six, six plus years in, in order to get there. You know, the way we see it is we think, to, to put it in today's terms, we think the Fed does accelerate tapering and they start raising rates in June of 22. I think Goldman came out today and said July of 22. Goldman has another rate increase of November of 22. And then they have two per year for the next two years. You know, that's going to put you, let's see, 50, 50, and 50. That's probably going to put you right around that 2%, just under it. You know, a lot of other people we watch and, and stuff we believe, we think there's going to be two, possibly three next year, three the following year, and three the following year after that. That's going to put you above 3%. So, yeah, is that near your 2%? Not too far away, but it's well short of your 2028. So we think as long as inflation stays here. Now, look, if the supply chain does get resolved and, and the number of worker shortages gets resolved, then, then maybe inflation will start to backtrack. But I got to tell you, watching the CBS 60 Minutes, I'm sorry if, I, if that's a competitor, CBS no, 60 no, Minutes great, two weeks no, ago, as well as, yeah. as well as reading a Bloomberg uh, uh, report right now, uh, Bloomberg report today, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the path of, of inflation, I think, is going to continue uh, to be very high because the supply chain is a disaster. I mean, you know, even, even if you get like the chip shortage, which both GM and, and I believe Toyota said they now have enough chips, I don't care. The supply <laughs> chains are, are awful and are going to stay awful for a bunch of years. I mean, there are not enough truckers, there are not enough rail cars. You know, there's, there's people who just can't get enough workers in order to drive the trucks because they have restrictions. Truck drivers, for whatever reason, don't seem to want to get their vaccination shots. I mean, there's just one thing after another. I just see it as a problem. And as long as inflation remains a problem, I don't see that 2028, 2% as, as accurate. And so let's talk about, you know, kind of one of the other weird things that's been going on in rates, which is these really negative real rates. And all that means is that if you take the Fed's target rate, which is basically zero, and you subtract inflation, which is, you know, two to three to six percent, you have massively negative interest rates in real terms. So there's a lot of people who argue that just by doing nothing in a period of high inflation, the Fed is actually easing policy. And easing policy is the last thing you'd want to do when you already have an inflation problem and a sort of excess demand issue. Do you think that's the correct reading of what's going on with these super negative real rates? Well, you know, there, there's some that are 
you know, uh, con conspiracy theorists that say that, you know, our deficit is so large that in theory, the, the best way to get that deficit down is not to rely on Congress and taxes, but to inflate it away. You know, that's something we, you know, we learned at Wharton in, in Economics 101, but I've never really seen it put to the test like it seems to be happening right now. And do I think the Fed is doing it consciously? No, I don't. But I, it does seem to be ending up in that direction. So do I think the, the Fed should raise rates? Yeah, I really do. But nonetheless, uh, I'm, I'm happy with a slow rate rise. But what you're doing is, Kelly, is you're throwing money into things that can, can outperform inflation. So you've got, even though obviously it hasn't traded well the last couple of days, you've got a huge equity asset problem. You've got a lot of money in high yields. You've got a lot of money in things that, that have pushed assets up to you know, very high levels. And I think they're going to correct. And you know, do you want to have a, a Greenspan type situation where you, know, where you kept rates too high and then you kept rates too low and, and you have all these bubbles like, like we've seen over the years? I don't think so. I think the Fed has to, I'm okay with them tapering. Let's taper a little more quickly. Let's start raising rates. European rates got demolished. 10 years were higher in yield by 10 basis points wow, in some markets and in, in eight, eight to nine in others. And the catalyst here was, uh, was one of the German ECB members who said very clearly, inflation is more important right now than COVID. And here they are in the middle of, they're having lockdowns in Austria and they're talking about lockdowns in other countries as well. And here they're, they're more concerned or she's more concerned about inflation than, than, than COVID. And COVID is, is, is horrible there right now. So I really think that inflation is a problem. I think that, you know, listening to Larry Summers, who speaks, you know, weekly on Wall Street Week, you know, I mean, he thinks the Fed is way behind. He sees the chance of a, of a soft landing all the way down to 10%, as opposed to his 33%. And, and I just think it's a problem. The Fed's behind the curve, and they're just getting more behind the curve every day. They need to be more aggressive. And if you look at the, late, the most recent Fed speeches, you had Clarida and Waller. Waller's a very interesting guy. It's worth listening to. Clarida and Waller speak Friday. You had Bullitt also speak Friday. And you had Bostic. And they're all in the, we need to discuss tapering more quickly and raising rates more quickly camp. Now, Clarida won't be there after January. But, you know, but he'll be replaced. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a dove or a hawk. The numbers are the numbers. You know, you've got, I, I'm not saying 6.2% CPI is going to stay there forever. I think it's going to come back down. But the question is, where's it going to come back down to? Three, three and a half percent? I doubt it's going to come down to 2% anytime soon. So the Fed needs to be vigilant and they've kind of dropped the ball. And now that it's been determined that Powell is, is the person you know, now Powell will, will get to see will get to see what Powell really wants to do and see if he was kind of kicking the can down the road in order to get reappointed. Can you go back? You know, I, I do like the fact that you've worked on Wall Street through so many different cycles and the ones that, you know, we all remember the financial crisis, but there have been others. There's been the Asian financial crises in the late 90s. There's been, you know, the European debt crisis that is quickly becoming, you know, a distant memory. I mean, all of these different things. You've seen the taper tantrum. You've seen the Fed have to reverse course on rate hikes all throughout the last decade and, and that kind of thing. But you brought up 1987 a little while ago. And just can you talk through what it was like 
going through an event where you wake up one morning and the Dow has dropped 25%. Um, interest rates back then, like you said, were, you know, the 10 year was at 8% or whatever. And I'm not saying something like that is going to happen tomorrow or would be the way that this all resets, but I'm just curious if there's any episodes historically that you draw upon when that sort of inform the, the strong view that you do have about the situation today. Well, you know, starting with, with 87, I would say no, because that was a very short-lived event. The Greenspan came out, but rates, we were all looking at each other. I was on the desk at Nemora. We were all looking at each other and saying, hey, should we be buying something here if, if the Fed's going to ease? And we started to buy, and then everyone else started to buy as well, and rates went down dramatically. I don't think that's, that's particularly relevant to what we have today. As far as the Asian... Uh, crisis. That was more of a uh, cornering of markets uh, in, 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 as well as too much leverage in the long-term capital situation. I don't see that as, as, a, as, as a similarity. But you know what? What, what is a similarity is the 1999-2000 uh, you know, internet bubble thing. Mm -hmm. And even though these companies that we're seeing today uh, are much better capitalized and with earnings, so on and so forth. When you see something like Rivian with, you know, making no cars and uh, no cars until next year, and all of a sudden they're worth, you know, they're worth the total valuations of both GM and Ford, you're saying, hey, we're not pricing things correctly. And, and yeah, sure, it could be the world's greatest vehicle, but you know what, there's, there's too much bubble out there right now in both IPOs as well as some of the high yield, uh, some of the high yield companies. So yeah, I think it's I think it's a problem. And will will raising rates accelerate that to a point? And and they have to be wary of that. But I don't see how this is going to end well. I would tend to think at best we have a mild correction of ten to fifteen percent. Uh, but you know, but yes, I don't think that rates uh, belong here. And I don't think higher rates over the long term, whether the 10 years, 167 or 367, really makes a lot of difference. But yeah. right now, people are saying if 10 years get to two and a half, two and five eighths, you know, you're going to have a crash in the equity market. I don't see that correlation that uh, as closely as that, but that is what I'm hearing. And that is in the right direction. I'm not so, sure I answered the question. No, absolutely. No, you did. You did. And, you know, it's basically kind of people are jumping to draw analogies to so many different periods of the past from the current situation. And I always like to know what you think it most reminds you of. Um, would you also just kind of give us a little color about if you'd say that they have changed the way in which rates markets have changed? You know, I look at Japan where the Bank of Japan has arguably gotten rid of <laughs> the market for 10 years securities because of what it's been doing with interest rates for so long now. There's just not a lot of private trading going on. Um, I look at what the Fed is doing with some of the changes to repo and reverse repo, and it almost seems like they are more important in short-term funding markets than they ever used to be, um, or simply the amount of balance sheet activities that they're doing that are basically acting a little bit like what the Treasury used to do, um, and the interest rate exposure that they now have taken on You know, if rates go higher. So how would you describe the changes to rates markets during the period that you've been working in them? Kelly, I think the changes are dramatic. 
you know, I'll talk about the Japanese situation first, but but I, I really want to talk about the U.S. and, and the Fed and, and, and how that's changed. In Japan, as you just said, that they have bought so much of the of the JGBs out there that many days the, the big multi-billion dollar JGB tenure doesn't even trade. So, I mean, it, it's total market manipulation. And you know what? You could say, well, you know, that's what they have to do. Kelly, it hasn't worked. I mean, you know, the 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 Nikkei, you know, back years ago when when I was again at Namora, the Nikkei was thirty eight thousand, probably in the late nineteen eighties. And as we look today, you know, it's it's taken what is that? So nineteen eighty nine. So it's uh, taken thirty years, and it's just getting back to under thirty thousand now. So I would say it hasn't worked. They haven't seen the inflation. They haven't seen the GDP pick up. So, you know, at some point, people just don't don't look at the rates markets anymore. And I think the, the Fed is getting dangerously close to that. They've made they've made the markets. They have basically managed markets. You know, if if the FCC or whatever was going to look at the Fed, they'd say that they're manipulating markets. But of course, that wouldn't fly. Hmm. Uh, it's gone to the point where dealers, you know, rates traders, the amount of money put into corporate corporate bonds and the capital by major dealers into these markets has shrunk so much that when when it, the dealers get called upon to to uh, come back and provide liquidity which they will do as the tapering ends i mean you take the fed out and and you know by april of next year now or certainly no later than the end of june and and all of a sudden the street has got all that risk that the Fed has had, and the Fed has taken on. Remember, the Fed doesn't care whether it's make whether it makes money one day or or the next. There's there's no VAR requirements from the Fed's perspective. Right. You know, rates could go much higher, and they just don't they don't hedge their mortgage risk, they don't hedge their convexity risk, they don't hedge anything. But all of a sudden, you put all that you know all those billions upon billions back into the street's hands to hedge. And, you know, and the street isn't ready for it. So I think we're going to have a lot of dislocation. And your other thing about repo is, you know, the street has moved back from and, and now the Fed is the the Fed is the J.P. Morgan of the world. Exactly. They're the ones that, that make markets. And that's not right. And that's not healthy. And that will come back and bite us. What about those who say if the Fed does it, the system will be much smoother and quieter because, like you said, they don't care if they take losses. They can still be there to accept treasuries or whatever in a panic, and that'll keep short-term rates from spiking. Kelly, think of it this way. What you're basically doing is you're, uh, you're uh, trying to prevent the inevitable. So what, what they're doing is by, by making things less volatile, while it seems great on a day-to-day basis, you're taking the opportunity for Wall Street or for dealers globally to, to make money. As dealers make less money, they put less capital into, into their markets. And then you have, they'll go and they'll do IPOs, they'll do SPACs, they'll do new issue corporates, which seem to be the hot things today. But they're not gonna be making a lot of moves on the trading desk. You know, they're not gonna all of a sudden, I mean, I'm used to, I used to see guys, you know, that I work with, they might take going into an unemployment number, they may take a two or $300 million position, you know, in mm-hmm. 10 years, which even today sounds really high. But, you know, there are guys that would, would do even more at some of the larger shops. You know, that's gone. 
I mean, you know, the, the, there are no back books in Wall Street, at least in theory there aren't. There's just not a lot of risk taking on Wall Street. And the longer that the Fed makes it, makes it, less, uh, makes it less likely that street firms are going to make money trading, they're going to continue to, to move away from trading. And that's kind of where we are right now. So that's really interesting because it makes me, well, I, I say, first of all, the Fed itself knows this. So no wonder they're giving a big heads up about the taper. And can they really just accelerate it that much more quickly? I mean, you have people saying they want the taper to be done by March now, but you're telling me that in the middle of a pandemic, you're going to have Wall Street firms in the period of 60 days, staff up these desks, prepare their hedging books and take on all of this risk that they no longer take on. I mean, how much of that really needs to start getting put into place in order for markets to function smoothly over the next couple of years? Well, Kelly, I think the unfortunate thing is, is the, uh, the, the street community uh, will not do that, will not do that in the short term until they start seeing ways for them to make money in trading mm-hmm. with, with more volatility. And, and I think it's going to be painful. And the Fed really will find it difficult in order to not take their, their foot off the brake or foot off the pedal or whatever the case may be. And, and I don't think it's going to happen. I think that's going to lead to a lot of dislocation for 2022 in both rates and credit spreads. Do you think the Fed knows all of this and is trying to prepare these overnight facilities that will mop up risk if things start to get messy and that they are sort of quite um, quite logically thinking through all of the mechanisms they want in place to make sure that rates don't spike? Let me answer that a little bit more cynically. Um, <laughs> There's, if you look at the Fed governors, they're all smart guys and they're all been in business. Some are bankers, some are uh, academia and, and what have you. But I can't think of one that's a trader. And the Fed listens to their 400, at one point I thought it was 800 PhDs that work for them. And, and very few of these PhDs, if any, have ever worked on Wall Street. You really need to have somewhat of a trader's mentality to understand behavioral science I mean, it it is very important as to how markets work. And I don't think the Fed understands it all. I think Wall Street does a decent job in their meetings with uh, Lori Logan of of trying to to convince them of that or to a point. But no, I don't think the Fed really knows it. I mean, Powell is is a pretty sharp guy, you know, with his, uh, uh, you know, working working, uh, on, you know, Wall Street or whatever, working for kind of a hedge fund per se, and I think he understands it. Clarida worked for PIMCO, but he's gone in, you know, 60 days. I mean, you know, uh, Brainerd, I don't think we ever worked on the street, you know, she's, you know, been more of a politician. And as you go through the different Fed governors, you know, probably one that, that certainly would, would have worked there was Kaplan, and, and of course he's long gone. Uh, so no, I don't think the Fed necessarily understands it to the point that that I'm suggesting. They understand parts of it, but I don't think they understand all of it. One more question on this, because this is so interesting. How much has Wall Street itself changed? You know, we've hinted at how, how rates have changed, but could you just place that in a larger context? Because it seems like it's smaller, it's more uh, technology, maybe fewer headcount. I don't know if the smaller players are really there to the degree that they once were. How much has Wall Street changed? Wall Street has changed quite a bit. 
I mean, yes, headcount is down. Uh, you know, a lot of, you know, I, I, I focus, I see the world, I'm, I'm a little different than most of the people. I see the world through the eyes of a fixed income trader, you know, with 30 plus years experience trading bonds. But, you know, I'm very active in, in, in equities per se. And I follow a lot of things because everything is interrelated. And yeah. you have to know what one market's doing in order to determine what the next market's doing. So I look at everything through the eyes of a bond trader. Having said that, Bonds have changed. They've got a lot more electronic. But you know what? I want to get really to the heart of your question. The amount of capital, and I don't have these numbers exactly off the top of my head. I asked someone about them today, and he didn't know either. But the amount of capital that Wall Street used to put into corporate bond trading was somewhere in the vicinity, and I may be off, but I, I'm definitely in the right direction, of somewhere in the area of four to $500 billion. So in other words, across all street firms, Four to five hundred billion in capital was allocated to bond trading, to corporate bond trading. That number now, I think, is is on the vicinity of probably fifty billion. Similar with with wow. municipals. You know, uh, our muni trader said something the other day, and, and I've seen other things written. It's probably down the amount of capital, and he's much younger than I am, so he's talking from a more limited time span. The amount of capital in muni in muni market making is probably gone. It's probably down 75 or 80 percent. So, I mean, you, you really it's changed quite a bit, which is why I'm saying that if all of a sudden, you know, with all these much larger auctions, even though the Treasury just reduced them a tad, uh, if all of a sudden, you know, you're not going to have a Fed of which to sell bonds to three times a day, um, you know, you're, you're going to have some some dislocation. Maybe it's going to be good for the hedge funds. Maybe, it's, you know, because. They have you know, risk parameters as well, but some of the hedge funds just really got clocked in the last six weeks. Mm -hmm. I mean, there must have been at least four or five hedge funds that I read an article that had stopped out their traders from trading between now and the rest of the year because they lost so much money because the market's been very volatile. You get to this 170, 10 years, and all of a sudden you're at 152 again. Right. Gee, what right. happened? Or 145, you know? yeah. You know, 145, ironic. 143, you know? Yeah. Jeez, I'm what happened? I, I mean, I just went to the dentist. I mean, well, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, and so, you know, it's, it's just crazy per se. And I think that's going to continue with us for a while because the liquidity as, as I know it or from past trading is, is just not there. And I just think there's more volatility. And, uh, and you know, for, for, different, for different regional dealers of which I'm now part of, uh, sometimes that's a good thing. This has just been so fascinating. I really appreciate it, Andy. So let me close by asking you, what would your advice be for investors? I mean, there are some obvious warnings here and some really interesting things that we all need to be thinking about in terms of market functioning. Um, but you know, what do you tell the kind of the casual person on the street who's going, okay, so I got stocks at all-time highs, I missed out on crypto, or maybe I have a little bit of it. I don't understand NFTs. You know, I guess tech stocks are expensive, but I don't know if I'm going to make money anywhere else. I mean, you know, not I'm asking for stock recommendations, but is there any advice you'd give just the average person for this environment? Well, I would definitely stay away from long-duration treasuries. And unless you're getting paid a decent yield, I'd stay, along, I'd stay away from long-duration long duration corporates as well. You know, I'd certainly look at, at the mortgage-backed market because the mortgage-backed market is the Fed reduces from 40 billion down to zero. You know, the, the Fed is still going, going to be reinvesting 
the, the money that uh, of, of runoffs. And that means the Fed right now is not buying 35 billion a month. They're buying 95 billion a month. So I think the mortgage market is probably okay. Uh, but you know, none of these things offer great returns. You know, as much as I hate to say it, I think you have to continue to look at, at the equity markets, but just stay away from the high flyers. I mean, there's obviously a, a very close correlation, which will end between, you know, uh, technology stocks and long duration uh, bonds. As long duration bonds go higher in yield, lower in price, the NASDAQ gets, gets hit. I mean, today it wasn't that bad, only down a half a percent, but at one point it was down much more significantly. That relationship will end, but I still think that stocks, inflation is going to be with us for a while. The Fed's not going to raise rates uh, fast enough for, for my liking. So I really do think you have to be involved in stocks, but don't go all in. Save plenty of money. I think a correction's coming. Have money for a bad day. And you know whatever you think the first correction is, wait by the second correction. Oh, that's really interesting advice. I love all these kinds of um, street tested methods that traders always talk about, kind of to your point about trading versus, you know, being a politician or being a researcher. Can I ask a kind of quick final question, a little bit of a curveball, but is there any career advice you'd give to somebody who's maybe, maybe older and thinking about, you know, do they want to kind of hang on to this ride, maybe younger and trying to figure out, you know, where to go on what we loosely call Wall Street. Does anything pop to mind? Yeah, sure. I mean, I do this all the time. I mean, I'm on a lot of Wharton committees and, and I'm down there, you know, uh, meeting the, the, uh, a lot of young, young uh, Whartonites or, or young Penn people because I'm on the Penn basketball board. So I'm down there for all the basketball games. <laughs> so, and, and plus my best friend uh, used to teach in the entrepreneurial department. And so, you know, we, we look at a lot of things. Look, I'm not saying not to go to Wall Street uh, as of now. I'm saying when you see a Wall Street guy, just run the other way, <laughs> run as fast as you can, because there's just no opportunity in Wall Street until things get better. And, you know, and you're, you're going after a shrinking pie. Now, if we really have a severe equity correction, then the IPO market, the tech market or, or the venture capital market, you know, might get hit. But as of right now, I got to tell you, Kelly, that that venture capital, I think, is the better place to go in private equity. I just think the returns are, are going to be much better. If you look at some of the top universities, ex-Harvard, uh, you saw that the returns over the last year were just phenomenal. I think Brown was 55%. Wow. Uh, I think, uh, think uh, Wash U was over 60%. And even, Wharton, even Penn was 49%. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying that's going to continue, but I really think that's, that's the next five to 10 years. And that's better than, than being, in, uh, being in stocks. And, uh, and actually, let me, let me adjust my previous recommendation. Yes, be in some stocks, but look at venture capital. You know, there, there are plenty of places where you can get good advice and you don't have to have millions of dollars. You know, there are plenty of places you can get in for a hundred grand or 50 grand or whatever the case may be. But I think that's better opportunity. And I think that's also better opportunity for employment. That in some ways is the last thing I expected you to say, given your concerns about, you know, valuations, but it's, it's something that's been true and lucrative since I graduated in 07. And, you know, for a couple of years, Wall Street was, was pretty good, but a lot of my colleagues, private equity, venture capital, absolutely. So it, it's reassuring in some ways to hear you say you think that that can still keep going for quite some time. 
Well, Kelly, I'll tell you that because of, of my Wharton connections, we were in Warby Parker at the beginning and we were in jet.com at the beginning. So I, I assume you, you, you know how both those have done. So <laughs> there, there are some good opportunities out there and obviously you're not gonna hit every one right and, and we've had some losers, but I tend to think venture capital is the place to be. All right, so then since you interact so much with the next generation, what do you think about DeFi and crypto and NFTs and you know Web3? I mean, we could really take this a lot further. <laughs> Kelly, I'm not a fan of crypto. Uh, you know, I, I look at the, uh, what I read, or uh, there was an interesting article in Bloomberg maybe a month ago about stable coins. And they were saying that, that stable coins, uh, I forget which one it was, that, uh, that they're increasing at a rapid rate. And people asked, you know, if the stable coins are paying eight, eight, eight or eight and a half percent yield, mm -hmm. what, what are they investing in in order to, you know, to, to, to counter that? And of course, the article said commercial paper, but it's but then it said, you know, they talked to all the big commercial paper players and not one of them had seen the, these guys in there. You know, they, they were saying that they were buying 50 billion of commercial paper. So I tend to think there's a real credibility problem in, in crypto. And, and I'm going to pass for now. Uh, as far as NFTs, no interest. And the other stuff, I'm not even sure what it is. <laughs> That'll be the subject of maybe future visits uh, to Wharton. <laughs> well, I will leave it there. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing some of your experience and, um, and your point of view with us on the markets today. We really appreciate it. Kelly, you're very welcome. Reach out to me anytime. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, That'll do it for this conversation. Thanks for listening, everybody. And be sure to follow the Exchange podcast and catch our show live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.